Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of August 2022 and this is episode 267. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Dr Alex Mayhew. Alex is a historian of the cultural, military and social history of the Great War and also a fellow of the Higher Education Academy at the London School of Economics. I spoke to Alex about his research into the morale and motivation of the British soldier during the final 18 months of the Great War. Alex spoke to me from his office in London. Alex, welcome back to the podcast. Before we start, can you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yeah, thanks for having me back, Tom. Um, I'm a historian of the culture of the British military. um, And in particular, I look at identity and morale in English infantry regiments. I did my PhD um, in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics, uh, where I was a fellow until recently, and now I'm a learning developer. Um, I'm currently completing my book on exactly this topic, building on my PhD, which is going to be published by Cambridge University Press, hopefully in 2023, so long as I submit it in the very near future, which is the intention. And for those people who may be wanting to get hold of that book, you may be listening to this podcast when it comes out, but we are recording in mid-March 2022. So, Alex, before we uh, start our conversation, what is morale and how do you measure it? Um, I'm over to you for that somewhat simple I think it's, yeah, very simple question. Um, and one that I think probably has as much literature surrounding it as uh, as the First World War, if you, if you delve deep into military history. Uh, I think that there are different ways to approach the question. There are inputs and there are outputs. So what do you do to cultivate high morale? And what does, how, what does high morale look like in practice? Uh, I think that if you, you take the perspective of contemporaries during the First World War, they had a different idea of what morale was to historians today. And generally speaking, you often see morale dropping the E in publications in the area of the First World War. So often it's referred to as moral as well as morale, which gives you a sense of exactly the kind of things they're thinking about. So you often see it used in relation to ideas like Alain or spirit, esprit de corps as well. And they frame it in a characteristically Edwardian way. So if you read things like infantry training in 1914, they would say that uh, the the idea of morale is to help the soldier bear fatigue, privation and danger cheerfully. Important that it was cheerfully. Um, That's always uh, an important feature, especially during the First World War. And equally, it's really related to at least officers' ideas of honour as well. So You want to imbue soldiers with an idea of honour, whatever that might look like. And they tend to highlight different kinds of characteristics. So things you could look for as evidence of morale. So confidence in superiors, uh, disregard for self, soldiers initiative, soldiers self-confidence, self-restraint, obedience, of course. And also things like combat uh, effectiveness, regimental pride, courage in battle. Uh, And... I don't think you really need to look too far beyond JFC Fuller to understand just how hard it is to use those definitions of morale to actually conduct an academic study. Uh, He said that it was a magical world, 
um, and the apparatus of victory uh, were impossible unless you endowed um, endowed your soldiers with morale. The military, as one would guess, it, given uh, the moral connotations of morale at the time, generally speaking, looked to things like uh, disciplinary apparatus, um, inculcating appropriate officer-man relationships, uh, focusing on soldiers' welfare, cultural pursuits, team games, all of these things existed in the army before the First World War. Now, I guess the problem for historians today is that we can see that that's not necessarily an appropriate analytical framework. And so historians kind of deployed a, a variety of different definitions. So Alex Watson, um, as many of the, the listeners would have read his work, sees it as, uh, to quote him directly, the readiness of a soldier or a group of soldiers to carry out commands issued by military leadership. I, I, I think that that's a perfectly ineffective definition, especially for Alex's work. But I think Jonathan Fennell's approach um, is, is more useful, at least in terms of my analysis, which is the willingness of an individual or group to prepare for and to engage in an action required by an authority or institution. Now, I think all of those are really useful. But as I mentioned earlier, morale is a series of inputs. It's an output, but we often neglect the fact that there's a process going on in the middle, right? Within the soldier's own minds, within the soldier's unit. And so in my work, I also focus on and define morale as a result slightly differently, this process. So I suggest it's a process through which servicemen positively or negatively rationalize their role as soldiers and constructive members of the military. And importantly, this is what underpinned, at least I think underpinned, their willingness to then prepare for or engage in whatever the action dictated by the military authorities were. Um, I think I'll leave it there because I've probably given your listeners quite a lot of stuff to 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 uh, to think about. I suppose my problem is when how then how do we measure it? Because it seems to be really difficult. And I know we looked at rates of uh, disciplinary cases, looked at sickness cases, and I've just completed a, a study of one unit which has listed the sick cases by day for months from February 15 to the armistice. And so there's this very, very much sort of list of this sort of, you know, when you look at, we compile them on a monthly level, it's a bit like, um, a, a, you know, a heart, heart monitor that's up and down all the time. And then I think, well, does this indicate good or bad morale? And it's really impossible to look at that unit and say, oh, it's good morale on this month because it's so consistent throughout the war. And, you know, if I was a soldier looking at that or a commander, I could never clue because, it's the complete lack of comparative data, which actually gives me this is good or bad and actually trying to tie it in with other things that are happening in the Unix, say, for instance, protests or um, mm. desertions or things like that. So, you know, even though we, we, we know that they looked at this, it seems that to judge morale was even then very, very challenging. And they have the same problems that we do because of the lack of data. Yeah, I think the lack of data is a really important part. And I know that you know and many of your listeners will know just how different especially regimental war diaries are in what they record, which makes the historian's attempts to actually quantify morale in any meaningful way really difficult. So I think, honestly, the, the true answer is it's quite crude if we're trying to measure morale, because if I was a, say, like a good social scientist, like many of my colleagues at LSE, what I would do is I'd get a series of variables and I'd run a regression to see what the relationship between those variables were and whether or not, for instance, sickness rate played an important part. I think the reality is, as you know, I mean, with sickness, uh, there are so many other things that can affect it. It could be that the weather's different. And we know that weather plays a hugely important role in morale as well. So 
uh, is morale low because it's cold rather than because the soldiers have lost any innate belief in, in the war. Uh, other historians have focused on, I guess, the, the output of battle as a way to try and track morale. So, I mean, victory uh, both inculcates high morale and surely is evidence of high morale. But we also know that uh, battalions that have a, an ascendancy in terms of their materiel might win a victory even if they have lower morale than the unit they're fighting. Um, people have looked at surrendering rates as evidence of morale, but I mean, Jonathan Boff in particular has highlighted the danger of doing that because surrender is often a context-specific action, right? It's something that occurs in the moment and it might be because the unit has lost its combat effectiveness. It might be because it's got low morale, but it might be just simply that it's surrounded <laughs> and the other option is death. And I don't think that we can necessarily characterize the desire to survive as evidence of low morale. It could damage combat effectiveness, but it doesn't necessarily mean that morale is low. So, I mean, the reality is that it's always going to be crude. And like you said, even at the time, they weren't creating data sets, which are useful for us. But I think that stems from the fact that the study of morale and the interest in soldiers' intrinsic motivations was a relatively new thing. And you see it developing through time during the war. So the reports on morale become more and more complete and intricate and detailed and analytical as the war goes on. We haven't been left most of those. So that damages the historian's attempts to, to look for evidence of morale. So, I mean, maybe this is me seeking a way out of the rather crude analysis of x plus y equals z but what i've tried to do is look at the the emotional register of the soldiers to look at their the culture of the british army and seek patterns and links and um any correlations which speak to the things that traditionally are seen as evidence of morale and then obviously link it to events and outputs where i can so um i look for discussions of command uh, anything that overlaps with discipline, ideas of military victory. And what I found, at least, is that you can start to seek and see patterns in the way that soldiers construct meaning around the war. And that meaning around the war often translates to and speaks to the patterns that historians have frequently looked at. So in particular, the idea that this period, late 1917, early 1918, is a crisis point for the British Army and the British Army's morale. You can see that if you do a more, I guess if I was an anthropologist, I would call it maybe like an ethno-historiographical, uh, an ethno-history of the, the army. So looking at the way that they constructed meaning and their culture, you can start to see why it might have been that this was a crisis moment. But saying that, it's really difficult to measure that in any quantifiable way. Um, as you are aware, what you do see is generally speaking, an increased incidence of things that are characteristic of low morale. So it's at this period, for instance, in a lot of regiments, if you take July 1917 to June 1918, it's in October, November, December 1917 that you see court martials, you see people being prosecuted for um, absence without leave. All of these things occur with greater regularity, but if I was a statistician, I would not use that to, to create a quantifiable output because the data just isn't there. Yeah. And I think I mean, I think the next, well, next question, it looks at how we would quantify morale over this period. And I think I certainly would characterise what you said, you know, essentially the second half of 1917. It's it's maybe 
bumpy to, at best. And maybe by, you know, summer of 1918, things are better. 100 days, things seem to be a lot better. That That's how I would broadly characterize um, morale. I know, you know, we could probably argue over levels of that, but generally the army keeps fighting and it keeps functioning. And there are dysfunctions within units, there are dysfunctions within armies. You know, for instance, does the Fifth Army collapse during the uh, spring offensive? And I think the evidence is probably suggests no. Um, where other people have suggested it is. So, you know, there are a number of problems, but, you know, we don't get the, the problems that the Russian army suffer, that the Italians maybe to a degree suffer at times, the Russians certainly suffer, and certainly the French do in April, uh, May. So we don't get any of those sort of, like, sort of widespread mutinies or, or or problems in that sense. Oh, I've got something going past me on the road. But, but I don't know what how you would, whether you would agree with that broad... Yeah, I think I would. So, I mean, the way that I would... The final chapter in my book, incidentally, is about this period, um, generally speaking, July 1917 through to June 19, um, 1918. And I think the best way to describe morale is that it was in flux. And I actually think this is one of the big issues with histories and morale more generally is they often stud are studied in stasis. It's the idea that there's just one unit. We're going to look at it, not by, I don't mean battalion in that instance, but morale is this, this big uh, block that we're going to analyze. And it doesn't look different depending on what, uh, I don't know what perspective we take on it. But what you see, if you take this period, uh, July 1917, or even from the beginning of 1917 through to the summer of 1918, is that morale is in flux and it does change over time. So early 1917, and I think this is where some of the, the popular per perceptions of the Somme uh, damage our historical perceptions of, of morale and um, issues of combat effectiveness, because early 1917, despite the winter weather, is a period of optimism in the British Army. The Somme was seen as bloody but it was by no means futile uh they they saw the british army taking strides forward morale definitely had changed but early 1917 seemed to indicate that the fighting of 1916 had borne fruit and that they were starting to learn their trade and they were starting to progress so operations on the anchor anchor and the somme um were seen as minor victories by the soldiers at the time uh, then you have the German withdrawals to the Hindenburg line in February and March 1917. And whilst we know from a historical perspective and an objective perspective that that was a sound strategic move on behalf of the Germans, the British saw that as evidence that they had won some pretty hard fought victories in 1916, that the Germans had been forced backwards, which arguably they had. And it seemed that they'd sapped the enemy's endurance. And even though the Germans had strategically retreated, the British still advanced and often they saw cavalry for the first time. They entered um, new villages and importantly, they also saw evidence of the German destruction that had been wrought on that area as they retreated. So they'd seen poison wells, villages destroyed. All of this re-emphasized the need to defeat the enemy. Um, you even have these stories of them coming across the first uh, evidence of German cemeteries and uh, I, they don't respect them. Um, there's one story of a German cemetery which they find in a village having been destroyed within two days of the British arriving because of the, uh, the, the enmity they felt towards the state rather than individuals, I think. And then you have Arras, you have Vimy Ridge, you have Messines, which had problems, no doubt. And there were moments of low morale, particularly among Australians. And there were, there were uh, issues with the conduct of some of those battles at times. But for the most part, it suggested the battle could reap rewards for the military. And I think this idea of battle is really important because what you see over the course of 1917, 1918, 
um, well, up until March 1918, is a dwindling belief in uh, the ability of battle to bring, a, bring about the end of the war among British troops. And Passchendaele is the key to this, really, because it's the, the major campaign of 1917, as we know, um, for the British. And it's not one that paints a particularly positive picture of battle's ability to bring about the end of war, which is ultimately what soldiers are looking for, because it's intimately related to their survival. And so especially the first phase of the battle after 31st uh, July, at Pilkham Ridge, at Langemark, um, the gains that were made were too modest to justify the, the, the pressures put upon the infantry. And we have to remember as well, the battlefield was, the Somme was churned, but the, the Ypres battlefield in 1917 was a hellscape. Um, soldiers frequently talk about it and it in itself was draining hope, but it's hard to paint anything as a success when the trenches you're capturing are so hard to recognize as anything other than just another part of the, of the landscape that had been created by battle. And those losses really, again, undermine the idea that battle is something that's going to bring about uh, a victorious end to war. You then, as everybody knows, have the slightly more successful buy and hold operations, which seem to indicate, okay, maybe there is some hope, but all of that is undermined again as you, you move into October um, and the poor weather returns. And I think we've already mentioned weather is an important uh, feature of sickness, but the weather, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, in, in 1917 is, is abysmal. Um, the rainfall in uh, July, August and October is, is in some cases double that that would be expected in months preceding the war. Uh, along or around Ypres, I just got the data here, it's 82 millimetres in July, 127 millimetres in September, uh, in, sorry, in August, and 107 millimetres in October, um, which is significantly more than the year before and significantly more than earlier in the year. And it really saps soldiers' soldiers' morale. I mean, it, it's as again, your listeners will be aware. It's a, it's a pretty horrific place to fight. And then you have Cambrai, which again seems to indicate that battle's ability to bring about the end of the war um, might have ended. Even when you win successes, the Germans seem able to take back the territory. And so you have this moment at the end of 1917 where there's wariness on the home front. There's a dwindling belief that battle can bring about the end of the war. The strategic picture elsewhere looks pretty poor. Um, Italy, as you've already mentioned, has a crisis morale. The French have had a crisis morale. Russia is out of the war um, for all intents and purposes. And so they go into winter um, for the first time feeling that the next year won't bring about victory. And that's true from generals through to privates. And it's something that really does affect their, their willingness to perceive of uh of the war as anything other than probably a stalemate. You start to see that as a common theme in soldiers' letters and in censorship reports that exist. But then the winter itself is one of uh, toil and, uh, and endurance. I think that somewhat paradoxically, the fact that it's such a busy winter as they prepare for the defensive, which again, damages the sense that the war is anything, anything close to being won, um, might actually deflect some of their attention away from the patterns of the war. And then as you move into 1918, it's quite quickly that you start to see rumours of the German impending German offensive circulating in the British Army. And one of the things that I argue is that actually the experience of 
the German offensives after 21st of March, but also the months preceding that when they start to hear that there are new bridges being built, built across the, um, the German lines, that uh, their troops are massing for what is likely to be an offensive. Suddenly it starts to um, re-engage the soldiers' sense that this is a necessary fight, uh, that the war is something that needs to be won. The Germans are, uh, are an aggressor. And then the fighting, the experience of fighting, even in retreat, re-engages this sense that battle might actually have the ability to bring about the end of the war. It's no longer stalemate, even if they're retreating. They're inflicting losses on soldiers, uh, enemy soldiers they can see. And there is this strange paradox, which is that the generals seem to be panicking about uh, a military crisis. But the soldiers themselves at a unit level see that actually their time is going to come, that actually they're, they're inflicting heavy losses. And don't perceive it as such. They're actually quite shocked by Haig's message, um, back, to, back to the wall message, that it got to that stage. And so by summer, especially when they'd, they'd endured the, the first wave of the offensive, which I think is the point at which what I would describe as an acute crisis and the soldiers don't collapse because of low morale. Where there are problems, it's because they're not adequately prepared. They didn't have time to train. Um, once they've got through that, I think they come out on the other side. Uh, with a sense that actually the battles to come could bring about the end of the war. And there's a wholesale change over that period because battle suddenly has a meaning again. So, I mean, that's really interesting. I, I, I think you know, it's a very interesting idea looking at the geostrategic situation and how that shapes their sort of perception of things. I think it's really interesting. Interesting, And it's something, I mean, again, it, that pattern resonates with me because I've got problems in the London Rifle Brigade after 30. There is mm. mutiny in the unit. And then in the, the latter stages of Cambrai, when they're in the counterattack, there's, there's again a mutiny in the unit. And it, there's another, mm. other problems in other units as well. I mean, minor, minor stuff, but potentially could have got a lot worse mm. had it not been resolved. So there is that sort of feeling of, you know, it, it, this, you know we're sick of this. It's not against the war per se, it's against maybe, you know, it's, it's around things like food, access to food, uh, not being treated correctly, which might be, you know, seen as a wider miasma of problems but then again mm. if well so what actually keeps them fighting why do they keep going um because i think that that opens the other sort of idea of you know ideology group theory leadership patriotism sort of nationalism esprit de corps um and why do you think what or what i mean okay it's one of these things we could debate forever but it's mm. i suppose top two factors which you think keep people going um i think that there is never a sense that there should be a peace at any price, right? So even as they have a dwindling belief in battle, uh, the, the furthest they go, if they are suggesting that the war isn't winnable, is that there should be a negotiated peace. And that is a relatively brief period of time. And I think this speaks to probably what I think is the most central feature of morale, generally speaking, but also in the British Army and specifically with English troops that I study, is that there is a resilience in their belief that the war was winnable and that the war was just and that victorious peace was the necessary vehicle for their return to civilian life, if that was what they were looking towards. And so the reason that you see this, this faltering morale at the end of 1917 is a dwindling but not collapsing belief in the, reality, in, in the possibility of victorious peace. And there are a variety of reasons that they, they have uh, a resilient hopefulness um, for victorious peace. And I think they, it stems from their own 
relationship with the state, the fact that the British government, the British military had quite rightly at points, but very successfully framed this as a war of defence. Uh, and that struck a chord with the soldiers and was something that, generally speaking, they believed. And equally, I think it just speaks to the innate nature of the human psyche, which is that we, we tend to be optimistic in those circumstances. There's a reason that humans have been able to fight wars throughout history. And there's a reason that humans uh, engage in pretty horrific journeys when they're refugees. It's that you're hoping that there is going to be a brighter future. It's something that's just sparked within our psyches. And so I would say that that is, is a central feature of it. And it's helped by the geostrategic situation. Uh, it's helped by the fact that March 1918 is further evidence that the Germans were fighting a war of an, off an offensive war and not a defensive war. Um, it was a reminder that the war could be lost, which actually had been forgotten. It's quite easy to forget the fact that really the British haven't been on the defensive since 1914, at least on the Western Front. Um, so I think that there was there had been a, a faltering belief in the war of defensive just because it hadn't had to happen for so long. But 1918 reinforces that. I would also say that in the case of the, the British army or English soldiers in particular, there is something very fundamental about their relationship with the state. And I think this is the big difference, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, between the uh, British English troops in my case and their French counterparts and their German enemies, which is what military service really means. In France and Germany, it's implicitly related to their citizenship. In Britain, that's not the case. The British army is not a mirror for democratic society. Arguably, Britain is not a democratic society in 1914-18. Um, suffrage is still fairly limited. Many of the soldiers that fought in the British army would have never voted, particularly in 1918. If you look at the average ages, it's and many units, the modal age is 19. So they were too young to have voted in a general election. Um, these aren't citizen soldiers, they're subject soldiers. And as such, they have a much more parochial relationship with England, with Britain. Their patriotism is drawn from actually things which I think are more resilient to change than a political system. So visions of home, their family, their town, their city, the landscapes of their, of their county. All of these things are are resilient to the, the machinations of the war. And as such, even as there are crises on the home front, as there are strikes, as there are issues with compulsion and conscription, home remains, remains a sustaining entity in the way that it doesn't, particularly in the German army uh, in 1918. And I'm not a historian of the German army, but those seem to be some of the most compelling arguments for the collapse in German morale, morale from my perspective, especially towards the end of the war. And then one of the other things I would highlight is we think about compulsion and uh, discipline as a, as a very obvious stick in most cases. So field punishment number one, for instance, or the, the threat that you could be shot if you mutinied. Um, so the death penalty being a, a key feature of British discipline during the war. But one of the key features of compulsion in my mind is that it can be it can be more intrinsic than that um it can be uh it can be faceless if you like so in britain 
in the era of the First World War, respectability is this, this cultural idea which is fundamental. Um, I think I might have mentioned in the, la the last time I talked to you, one of my favourite books about uh, Edwardian Britain, it's called Roundabout a Pound a Week, and it's this like proto-sociological study of, of London. And like as then, as now, uh, one of the ideas about the working class was that they were poor because they spent all of their money on alcohol and things that were frivolous. But what Maud Pember Reeves, who uh, was the author of this book, discovers is that actually they spend a disproportionate amount of their money on burial insurance because they don't want to have to lean on their community when their children die. And I think that speaks to the power of this idea of respectability, right? But it also feeds into the British Army. So you have character references, which are implicitly related to your life after the war um, to help you get jobs. The soldiers are aware that they're getting they're aware that they're getting uh, regular feedback on their performance. The officers are getting feedback on their performance at training, for instance. And they're aware fundamentally that their performance during the war, their ability to work within what the military defines as the, the boundaries of respectability will have a huge bearing on their lives after the war. And so I think those three things are really fundamental when it comes to the resilience of, of British morale during that period. I think I would accept all your all, all that you're saying. I suppose I would probably take a slightly different view, and that I would probably because my PhD was on this subject, so I've been a bit brainwashed. But I think it's the role of the small group and how that builds again, reflecting a lot of the values that you've talked about. And the, the small group is a, is a conduit through which these social pressures are put on people that people conform to the general sort of idea ideas of value, and that groups, you know, in a way, self censor they. They don't generally have, um, you know, you get some groups, I think, which are very anti-patriotic or war-weary, where you get others which are very much, not really pro the war, but not against the war. And there's these sort of, and they, these reflect broader ideas of masculinity and respectability. And, you know, you're doing the thing that's right. And, you know, there's also human factors like um, bullies in units who have disproportionate influence. Um, the fact that groups, you know, are forced together by necessity and they are function, they are functional entities they you know for instance they man a Lewis gun or they do do a, a job so there's a lots of sort of camaraderie very much around that and once the war ends they all go their separate ways and and you know it's a temporary thing and the people and the context very much shapes that but I would argue that is the key thing I think I think the argument that they people formed close relationships with, within significant others is un, unusual you know the idea of having a very close um, dual relationship where we, we we both share our hearts and we, we talk about life it's it's not like that some people certainly do have that but mm. Peter Hodgkinson has argued that you know the relationships are very much you know like in the workshop it's a it's a functional role and you have a functional attitude to your group and again I think that's very much class dominated as well middle mm. class lads have a very different view of work than working class lads and mm -hmm. you know because I, I think your paradigm is really interesting on English soldiers I was wondering the other Reflection would be Irish soldiers from 1916 yeah. to 1918. You know, many of them see their homeland on the verge of civil war. I mean, you could argue it was on the verge of civil war in, in 1912. But the idea mm. of British suppression of um, the, the Easter Rising and some of the things that happened there, the rise of Sinn Fein, and actually, mm. very few Irish units actually have disorder in them. That I think is really interesting. Very yeah. little reported stuff that I can. So, you know, but you know, the majority of the military Irishmen probably supported the war effort. And, they, you know, they thought they would get home rule afterwards. I mean, I know yeah. it's easy to see it in the... We all think it's a foregone conclusion. But 
Um, I'm being summoned by hungry. <laughs> I'll keep this short. But um, in terms of that, I think you know. We, I think your point about you have to see it in the in the time. You've got to look at them in in the day that they're mm. looking at it. Not it's all inevitable that we're going to win. It's not. No. Um, but I said, and I think I also I think the point Gareth Sheffield makes is about junior leadership is also important. But I also yeah. think all those factors like manliness. I think you, I mean, again this can often, as you, as you pointed out before we started talking, stoicism, manliness. These values, you know, mutate themselves, you know, from the Romans right the way through to the Edwardians, and they have slightly different variances of it. Um, but also, I think communication with home, because I think Ed Koss makes yep. a very interesting point. He's a Napoleonic scholar. And, that you know, the group is more important in, in the Peninsula War in, in sort of 1808 to 1814, because you don't have that connection with home in the same way that you do with modern technology, newspapers, um, telegrams, letters, and, and a literate, much more literate society. So, you know, yes. the dimensions and the, the levers that function well in terms of morale is, I mean, in a way, I think we are probably agreeing much of the same thing, but there's just different perspectives on that, which again, which makes it so fascinating. I would say so. I think that there are, there are like you said, as, and as I mentioned earlier before we started speaking, there are a lot of features of Edwardian Victorian society that have been highlighted as unique, um, uniquely British, and that might explain why the British army, uh, why its morale didn't suffer the same sort of crises that its allies and enemies did. Um, but like you said, those echo through time. And I think this issue of respectability is pretty unique to its time and period. And I think your, your discussion of the small group and the group is really important as well, because if you think about those links with home, which are also fundamental, one of the, the things, and this is why I keep highlighting that I'm speaking about English units, is that these are relatively, or surprisingly, I'll say, uh, homogeneous in their makeup. So there are strong regional contingents and often still quite strong local contingents in the units right up until the end of the war. So these people they're serving with might often at least have a familiar accent, but might very well be from the same town. And so this idea of respectability is all the more powerful if you're in a group which is going to overlap with your civilian and um, civilian life. And I think that that's really essential. The officer-man relationships are important, as we know they are throughout military history. There is one thing that I'd highlight about officer-man relationships, which is I think for a long time we viewed other ranks through the perspective of officers, through the lens of officers. And so when we talk about officers' paternalistic duties, officers certainly felt that. But from my perspective, I don't think the other ranks necessarily saw it in the same way. I, I think they occupied different worlds and the things that drove other ranks on. And again, I think I mentioned this in the, the previous podcast I did with you, but the things that are fundamental to them are uh, doing a good job, walking away with a good character reference, and also the idea that their, their service is finite. They're the people who often talk about having done one's bit. Um, although this is actually built into military structures, you frequently read, even in Haig's diaries, you see an old soldier who's got several wound stripes. They should have, they should have a, a cushy job. Uh, they've done their bit. They shouldn't be expected to serve on the front lines. And that's built into the structures. Not so much for officers, though, because their duty is infinite in the way I think that Gary Sheffield has highlighted previously. But I think we have to be careful of imposing the officer's perspective of what they do onto the other ranks, because I'm not sure that they did really occupy the same world. And you only really need to look as far as um, her private we by Frederick Manning to get a real insight into just how true that is. 
just how alien some of the officers' ideas about the war are to the other ranks and to the, the working classes. I There is one thing, though, I, and I, I think this is an interesting point about the resilience of the um, the small group. Because one of my arguments, and we're always allowed to disagree, so it, maybe if we do, that would be more interesting for the listeners. But one of the things you see in uh, 1918, 1917 through to 1918 is just how high the casualties are in frontline units in the Fifth Army in particular. So in some cases between October 1917, May 1918, they have as many as 800 uh, new men entering the unit. So they're almost diff- they're almost a palpably different demographic organism by that that point at the end and i go back to that point about them being young as well i think is really important in in 1918 because you see several reports of uh that indicate that these young soldiers especially if they haven't had much training uh have very high levels of morale and are very reliable if things are going their way but once there is a german counteroffensive, often their their ability to uh fight back collapses and their confidence collapses and I think it's probably telling that the period at which the British Army is on its offensive and their morale seems to have rejuvenated to a degree is also when it's filled with men, young men, pretty much boys, who have a much lower sense of risk uh, than adults, probably are less attached to the home front in terms of having dependence. I think that there is something really important there. Um, and the other thing we haven't really talked about, which is important, is training. And I, if we're talking about small groups, the reason small groups are cohesive is training helps it. But one of the things which I think has been highlighted but not investigated in enough detail is the period up until 21st of March is characterized by a real deficiency in training. Um, the need to reestablish new lines uh, for defense in depth leads to training being neglected in a period where it needs to be focused on, especially if you're trying to uh, inculcate new ideas, change your tactical doctrine. Um, and so in between July and 19, November 19, July 1917, November 1917, I think if you look, units had about on average 11, 11.35-ish days of training per month. By December 1917, March 1918, that collapsed to about seven days per month. And if you then look at the qualitative data on what they were actually training in, often they were still training in the offensive and in offensive tactics. So it's not really any surprise that when suddenly there was a German offensive, they didn't know how to respond effectively. And I would argue that actually March 1918 is characteristic of deficiencies in training rather than deficiencies in morale. I think that that's the bigger factor in why the Fifth Army collapses, for instance, because they've had arguably the most horrid time in um, in the winter period because the lines they took over from the French were much less well prepared for the defensive battles that were to come. Um, and Obviously, good training also inculcates all of these other features that are uh, correlates of morale. And that is increased over the, the spring period and as you move into the summer. So I think the army that's fighting in, in summer 1918 is both demographically often quite different. It's much younger. Um, often it's soldiers that hadn't gone through 1917, which is a really important thing. They hadn't experienced those battles, um, especially in the units that suffered most in March 1918. And it's much better trained, right? They, they, they've adapted again um, their training regimes to fight the battles that are to come, which is not something they could do because of manpower issues and frankly, just lack of time in, in that winter period. Which is interesting because my evidence on my grandfather's unit 
suggest something completely different. And, and my, the mm. data I looked at um, length of service data, so how much time they spend, individuals spend in France using mm. the roll data, which, which lists their entry and exit date, assuming the vast majority of that time is spent with the unit. Now, by 1918, you're, you're looking at a service of around four or 500 days on average. This is a mm. of around 3,000 men. So, and it goes up, you know, maybe from about 100, 150 days in 1915 up to this sort of 400 days. So I'm, I would argue that length of service then builds experience, which therefore builds skills. So mm. how do we know that units are becoming more effective? Well, I looked at all the raids uh, in mm-hmm. the 6th Division. So this looked at whether they achieved, uh, a, a raid achieved getting what would be called an identification, essentially knowledge of the opposite unit, for instance, of capturing mm. a prisoner. And you find in 1918, the effectiveness of raids are exponentially better than the previous two years, which mm. means to suggest that infantry skills are exponentially better. You know, they have surprise, they coordinate better, they work better mm. with each other. Now, this is a very dubious, I, you know, it's a very, very um, specific measure and one that you can poke holes in, definitely. Mm. But it's the only one I think you can actually look at units functioning. And, it, and mm. et cetera. So, Performance is better now. Whether that's related to morale is indeed another debate. Mm. But I would argue it probably is. But also it's, it's related to the fact people have got combat service and have been through, you know, vast amounts of fighting and trench holding. And they mm. know how to operate Lewis guns. And you, you you need a much more technically proficient army in 1918 than you did in the So, you know, operating a Lewis gun, keeping it functioning. And these groups are not smaller. They are much more, you know, you have some mechanisms of surveillance and other people. We all have to operate mm. together. We can't just fall into a shell hole when we go to the top with our rifle. You know, so it changes the social dynamics of units because they're, mm. they're much more operating machines. And again, yeah, I'm only talking about the infantry. I'm not talking about other units. Yeah. I mean, you have to accept there are limitations on that. But that would be my, that's the experience in my unit. But then again, units are different. So my experience in the fifth sixth division may be completely different from another unit. So, you know, that's why unit histories are so important. They're obviously what a lot of what you say would apply to them completely. Yeah, and I, I actually don't think that, um, I think we're probably on a similar uh, journey on slightly different tracks, which is, I think that idea of them becoming more efficient, especially in raids, etc., doesn't necessarily negate the idea that they just weren't prepared to fight defensive battles because yeah. those, those tactics, um, and I think that focus on the small unit especially after 1917, is really important, especially when it comes to fighting as isolated units in retreat or in advance. But the thing about defence on depth is it, in depth is it takes, um, it takes coordination, which is not something they ever spent time or they had time to train in over the course of the winter period. And I think there's a reason why seeing units fall back on your, on your left or on your right flank then led to panic because that's not something they trade in. Whereas like local retreats were an important part of defense, elastic defense in depth. But you only knew that if you'd been effectively trained to understand what the tactics really meant. And I also wonder actually if a lack of tactical understanding might have protected them in some way, actually from the, the, full, um, the full extent of the crisis that was unfolding in March, well, at least in March, 1918. Um, I'm not sure that they realized, probably because they didn't understand really what was going on um in in the same way as some of the narratives you see about that the the retreat to dunkirk in 1940 characterized for, by confusion rather than by a sense that there's an enfolding crisis which might end end up with the with the exodus of the british army from um from france which is obviously what Haig is terrified of in, in 1918 so i think that, that there are overlaps there and perhaps they were really well prepared to fight an offensive battle but 
they had to wait for that to eventually come. Interesting. I mean, the, the physics division do very well at Combray. They, there's a publication mm. called Story of a Great Fight, produced by the GHQ, which celebrates their defensive fighting in mm. uh, December 17. And then in March 18, when they're attacked on the 28th of March, they do very well. So again, defensively, they are very, very competent unit. Mm. But again, that's one unit. So I, you know, I accept a lot of what a lot of the narrative you described. That is completely applicable to many other units. But why the 56th Division do well? Again, it could be them. It could be their location. It could be luck. Um, but again, it's, it's always a different story. And I think I always take the unit approach. I know you take yeah. a broader view, uh, both of which are valid. No, and I agree. And I think that luck and locality are really important. Um, I think that obviously it's a well-worn argument with 21st of March 1918, but the weather does play a massive part and it causes a lot of the panic. Uh, suddenly seeing the enemy on your flank, uh, appearing quite close to your trenches without any real warning that they had got that close to you was a shocking experience, especially for units that weren't necessarily as well-trained or well-versed in the defensive battles as they should be. But it's telling, right, that in areas where they knew the landscape better, uh, where they knew the trench networks better, when they knew that there were sunken roads which might allow troops to get close to them, um, and where the fog was not as severe, they did put up a much more staunch defence than some of the units in the Fifth Army Front. And so I think I think that unit perspective is really important. Uh, but as I said, I've been uh, trying to seek the correlations, which may or may not be a good thing. Which I think leads us to the last sort of debate about this is the role of political and military authorities in supporting and sustaining morale how was your view of that do you think the british army as a, as a corporate entity becomes better at supporting soldiers and making them i suppose better better combatants yeah um i think that it it definitely does and it's easy it is I, with the caveat it's easy to read retrospectively because we know that the allies emerged victorious we know the british army didn't collapse and that's not to say that there weren't moments in which both political and military policy nearly led to disaster. Um, and I'm thinking particularly here about disagreements about manpower. I don't want to get into that historiographical debate, but the issues of manpower in 1918 and that winter, are in, well, 1917, 1918, are really important. And they could have created a crisis which was not, um, which was, would have led to disaster, but it, it didn't. I think the really important thing is in the military's case, and as uh, Amy Fox has highlighted like it does learn to adapt. It learns to learn. Um, and so without getting into the learning curve debates and the idea there are multiple learning curves, there is a sense in which the military uh, learns how to fight. The other thing it does, which I think is really important, is it learns to see its soldiers as more than just automatons. Um, it moves from a perspective in which the soldiers were... Um, meant to be dominated to one in which they had to be motivated. And 1917 is an important part of this process. I think there's a realization that, as Hay calls it, the, the morale of his army is a delicate plant, um, that actually it needs to be nurtured. You need to water it. You need to do all the things you need to do to keep the plant alive, not something I'm particularly good at. And you see at that time then, um, the institutionalization of a lot of the uh the popular culture pursuits that we know very well occur in the british army 
So it moves from a unit focused event to something which is organized from the top down in a much more effective and efficient manner. Starts in 1916, but 1917 is a really prominent place for this. And I've written elsewhere about the organization of, uh, of vegetable shows in the Harvard during 1917. And that's part of this process. It's a realization that actually you can start to nurture your, your soldiers rather than just dominate them. But that also speaks to demands from elsewhere, right? They were meant to reduce their, their food intake. They needed to start growing vegetables. They needed to start growing food on the Western front because they were going to get less from, from, uh, from the home front. Um, and they also needed to become self-sufficient. Um, this also speaks, I think, probably to the reason that soldiers started seeing the war as a much more long lasting thing. If you're starting to grow vegetables and farm, that doesn't suggest that there is, it's a temporary event. Uh, but all of this, I think, really helps and is really successful. That being said as well, Systems of rotation are much more effective um, in the British Army than they are in other in other militaries. And I think that also helps. So it's only really in March 1918 and in the very early days of the war where you see really impossible demands being put on units. So it's March 1918 is the only time from 1940 onwards where you see more than really two days of combat per battalion um, per month. They're usually cycled out quite quickly and given time to recuperate, which is really important. If we look at the government, I mean, the government is not the focus of much of my analysis, but obviously they affect the way that soldiers um, live their lives. And so I think the government did well to mobilize public opinion, did well to mobilize um, uh, the idea of a defensive war. But I, I would put one criticism at the door of the government, and this isn't to say that they didn't do it with good reason, but I'm going to go back to the issue of manpower, because I think that the decision for whatever reason to withhold manpower from the western front in winter 1917-1918 created a situation in which the demands being placed on the british military and the bef were almost impossible to meet the combined need to extend your front and also change defensive doc to do uh, doctrine of defense in depth uh they weren't coherent. You needed more men to be able to dig trenches whilst also training your frontline troops to be able to respond to uh, well, defensive battles in the future. And I think that that would be the major, uh, the major criticism I'd direct towards the government. Otherwise, I think the interesting thing is discussions of government policy. Um, I mean, obviously, there's interest in the change of leaders uh, from uh, to Lloyd George from Asquith in, in 1916. But generally speaking, there is very limited discussion of government policy, which I think probably speaks to their success, right, in, in ensuring they're well provided for, in ensuring that, um, that manpower is sustained for the most part outside of what I was just saying. But I also think it speaks to something I've already hinted at, but I think one of the unique features of English troops, at the very least, is a degree of political passivity. They're quite passive politically. Um, and so I think the government maybe get away with more than they would in, say, the Second World War or today in terms of their interventions, because it's it's not something that the soldiers do very often. And that might be a nature of the source material. But I also think it speaks to a society that isn't particularly politically active at this stage. Um, obviously, we know that trade unionism is fairly large, but I, my instinct is that most trade unionists either remained within um, industry or returned to industry um, as, as there were demands there, or were in other arms of the armed forces, in support arms, for instance, which is where you actually see in, in the most part, some of the more severe instances of, um, 
of ill discipline are in units where I think you probably do have larger components of politically active soldiers. So I think that I'm probably letting them, the government off with more than they deserve only because the British soldiers let them off with quite a lot and never really engaged in too, uh, um, too much criticism of them, unlike their superiors. I would, I can't fault anything of what you said. I would, there's one thing that everybody just forget and I've forgotten it so much. And it's only Rob Thompson who has told me the fact the British army fed their soldiers consistently throughout yeah. the war. And that is yeah. fundamental to morale. I mean, they didn't feed them well and food was actually a way of bonding troops together to go and steal it or whatever. But the fact that they mm. largely fed their, their forces, I think is probably the underpinning fact it's not it's not sexy it's not things something we don't really talk a lot about we just yeah. see it happen. and it's a it's a, the logistical framework around that and i know it wasn't perfect food it was pretty poor at times but that's kept men fighting had they not had the food that mm -hmm. meant a very very different story you're absolutely right i mean i mean classically social scientists often refer to maslow's hierarchy of needs but food is a really important part of that right if you if you don't have food it's hard to function both physiologically and and mentally and i think the other thing i would say is yeah there are a lot of complaints about food and when food doesn't reach the trenches you know about it, that's one of the first things they'll complain about but for a lot of soldiers that the way they were fed in the military actually compared relatively favorably with the kind of food that they would have in their working class lives, especially for the, the urban poor and the rural poor. Um, they had a more consistent access to high calorific food than they might have at home. And so it's not uncommon to see, especially when they join the armed forces in the first place, a lot of references just to how much better their food is. Officers can afford to supplement their diets and they do. Again, they complain when they can't, especially during winter. But those are those are really important. And I think that both the the army and the the civilian government um, did a unbelievably good job at making sure that the armed forces were well supplied in those respects. I should have also mentioned like one of the other things is is obviously where soldiers were staying and living. Um, we know that trenches weren't a particular ple particularly pleasant place to be. Um, and but when they we also know that they didn't spend all of their time there. And I would argue that soldiers were remarkably um resilient despite the paucity of the courses uh, the the quarters that they were offered they they complained regularly about um the quarters uh tents obviously could keep the rain out but didn't do much for the cold and they were often on arable land which flooded so often the trenches uh, the trenches the tents were flooded um and equally even after they introduced nissen huts nissen huts and this maybe even speaks to the uh, the power of the small unit they often lacked glass or floorboards or any of these things because units would often take them to create fires or do whatever they might for their for their colleagues and their comrades. And so even those places weren't particularly good at keeping out the cold, even if they kept out the rain. Uh, there are a lot of complaints about them. So I wonder if they could have done slightly better with accommodation, um, but they, they got away with it, even if they could have. And I think I'm, I'm talking of logistical failures. I have a hungry cat which has been bullying me for the last <laughs> few minutes, and there's going to be revolution here if I don't do it. But the final question is: When is your book going to be published? Obviously, it's, it's um, with Cambridge as we speak. What mm. date of its publication or likely publication? Likely publication, I'd, I'd say over definite is 2023. Um, so it should be there for popular if limited consumption um, at that stage, and hopefully it's at a price point which will allow at least some of your readers to be able to save up some of their pocket money for it. Well, 
I hope they do. Alex, that's been fascinating and that's been really helpful for me as I'm trying to do the same thing as you with from a different angle. So I think it's suitably different, hopefully. And when you slate my book in some journal, I won't hold it against I you. I won't do that. I'm too nice. We talked about political uh, passiveness. I'm, a, I'm academically passive. I, I'll just take things as they go and I'll celebrate successes rather than critiquing I'll, them. I'll take your, your, take your paternalism with some deference, sir. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.